Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin. Uh, We're back. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about Sgt. Pepper following on from our first part last week, which we realised was quite a gallop through what was a very busy four and a half months of recording. Um, So there's still an awful lot more to talk about, and we're going to cover it from a a couple of uh, different angles. Uh, But we want to talk about the album and its release and its its afterlife. Um, When we left it last week, we were at the end of recording, so the Uh, end of March the start of April 1967 when they're doing with a little help from my friends and the uh, the second version of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band but probably the most pivotal thing that happened outside of the recording itself happened right at the end of March on the 30th of March when the Beatles had the cover shoot for the album itself and as far as album covers go it's a pretty unique and special thing isn't it? Yes, I mean, I think it's uh, at the time you think Revolver was the album that went before. Which yeah. is a very stark black and white um, uh, uh, line drawing, and here it's it's sort of completely over the top, colourful cast of thousands. Yeah, and I'm I remember finding out as a kid that you know it's a real thing. Uh, and it's really sh- shocking to find out that the Sgt. Pepper cover was a real thing that the four Beatles climbed into yeah. to get their picture taken. That it's not a photo collage. It's not a... Obviously, there was no digital trickery, but there certainly was photo collage trickery at the time. And the fact that this is a real room um, that was put together for the photo shoot still kind of boggles my mind. Yeah, I mean, me, me too. I mean, I think I, it never occurred to me that that was the case. It, I, I think as a kid getting the album, I just assumed this was the sort of thing, collage that you do yourself, with yeah. putting pictures out of magazines and people's faces. And uh, it, it, it is very odd. <laughs> it is very odd. Uh, so there's a lot of things to, to take in about the album cover, but it's to their credit that they went as far as they did because it started with a couple of little seed ideas and I think the original seed of the idea was that Paul McCartney was thinking of some kind of municipal situation like a brass band type thing and this notion that there were floral arrangements and floral clocks in the local councils of England and people would get their pictures taken there and these kind of official ceremonies isn't that the the seed idea? Yes I think that was was the notion uh, and as with all these covers, there's a little sketch, you know, the Paul, yeah. and a little line drawing at some point. But uh, th- th- there is this idea that whenever they were in Sweden yeah. uh, on tour, uh, one of their, their sort of first uh, uh, tours after they, they sort of uh, hit, it, hit it big, um, he was given an album. 
and uh, by a Swedish group, and it has a cover that's very similar. There is, yeah. Uh, there's to, people in these kind this. of regimental, yes. colourful costumes. Yeah. I forget the name of that album. But, um, but we, we can put a picture of that up. But uh, yes, it was this idea that it was a municipal band or a marching band, and yeah. the idea of the flowers at the front, I think, was one of the, was Peter Blake's wife, uh, Jan Hayworth. Yes. Uh, is that how you pronounce that? I think so. Um, came up with this idea of having seen a floral clock. She thought this would be... Uh, this, this, this would be very good. So it's a, it's a cover that, you know, uh, you can pour over it. You can try and identify everybody that's there. You can see the cryptic messages. You can see the supposedly the pot plants. Yeah. Pot plants um, <laughs> uh, in the front. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's befitting the, uh, the contents, I think. So Paul has this idea, and I think he takes it to his art friend, uh, Robert Fraser. And yeah. he's the person who brings in Peter Blake and his wife Hayworth and uh, the photographer um, uh, Cooper, Cooper uh, Michael, Michael Cooper, Cooper. Uh, where the, whose studio is used. It's apparently a very small studio, but Robert Fraser is the person who gets it from Paul's notion of a mayor or a town council yeah. or something into something that's very much pop art. And it's, you know, probably the most famous person out of that trio is Peter Blake who's mm. gone on to have a long and illustrious and ongoing career uh, as, a, as a pop artist so he was still very much at the, the early part of his career but it was a very wise choice you know that yes. he's somebody who went on to really make a difference in British art well he's just designed the cover of the new Who, Who album. album yes yeah. he also designed the old he designed Face Dances Face as, dances well, didn't as well but so. yeah he's done the new Who album yeah. and uh, there's certainly a you know you look at the new Who cover there's a very noticeable Peter Blake style mm. that perhaps you don't get out of Sgt Pepper um, but you see it in Paul Weller's Stanley Road that's another one of his covers and he did a, a Madness cover a few years ago as well um but yeah, the, it, it, Robert Fraser really had his finger on the pulse of what was happening to pull in those exact right people. Mm. And also for them to be given, for them, i.e. the Beatles, to be given the money to do this, because this was an expensive cover. This was £3,000 in old money, which I'm reliably informed is about 50000 Okay, today. Yeah. Which seems relatively cheap today. Yeah. I'm sure there's, there's yeah. a marketing budgets for 50,000 as, as a drop in the ocean, considering how much videos cost in the 80s. Except that's, that's today, of course, you, you, would just, you would just Photoshop everything in. And yes. It would, look, it, would look, uh, it would look like a different thing altogether. But yeah, and, and it, it comes together quite quickly. As we said, the photo shoot was on the 30th of March. They spent about eight days assembling the cardboard cutouts and the faces and the models and the actual uh, you know environment mm. for it um, but when you think about it the song only started to exist at the start of February so you know for you know it, it, it happens in the space of you know a month or so that it goes from song to getting the title track to evolving into this this very specific pop art cover yeah I mean it's and it does seem very specific yeah um uh, despite the fact that there's no apostrophe in uh, Sergeant Pepper, I know, that, I know. That, 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 uh, am I allowed still to be annoyed about you, that? You can that, still be annoyed uh, about that. That's okay. Um, but it also fulfills this thing that we talked about in the first part of the album, sort of being by the Beatles, but sort of outside the Beatles. And in some ways, that's signified by having the waxwork Beatles on the cover. That's a very modern thing. Do you not think that's a kind of like meta? Yeah. You know, there they are. They're standing beside. The Beatles and the waxworks, and it is this notion that I think they're leaving that mop top image behind, but yeah. also the idea that this is a completely separate yes. band. So it's a completely separate fictional band. But actually, once you start listening to the music, you realise it's it's it is a different band than the mop top. Yeah, 
And it's it's it, it is interesting that even now there's you know we we now have breakdowns of who the people are on the cover, but there's still unrecognizable faces. It's not an obvious collection of people. And each four Beatle was each of the four Beatles gave a list to the artists in question about who they wanted to include and who they didn't want to include. Yes, uh, yeah, that's the that, that's the thing. It's 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 everyone seems to have had some. Input. I, d- I don't know that uh, Ringo or you know George just came up with a list of Indian yes. gurus, which again is this indication of where his head was at yeah. at, at, at the time. But um, one, of, you sort of think, well, these are these are contemporaries. So you've got references to the Rolling Stones, yes. uh, a you, band who are still touring. I mean, that is funny, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to the Rolling Stones. Um, you've got Bob Dylan. Yes, the, still touring. Still touring. Uh, the person who's not there, Elvis, isn't there. Yes, yeah. And um I, I that that is an omission that I, I I even sort of years ago when I was looking at this and you were saying, Well, you Dylan, you've got the stones and you think, well But actually there's none of the fifties rock and yeah. rollers there, yeah. really. Is there? I mean you've got Brando, which is I know he's not a rock yeah. and roller, but he's certainly of that uh But in moment. terms of the idea being these are people that, that have influenced the Beatles or yeah. have sort of culturally influential and you think, well, why did they put the Stones were ostensibly rivals? They could have not bothered name-checking the Stones on the cover. Dylan was a contemporary and a rival. Uh, maybe it would have been better not to put it. But why not? Why, why is Little Richard not there? Why yeah. J- uh, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, or Elvis? And um, just when I was researching this, I saw there was an interview from Paul McCartney, and he said, well, Elvis, Elvis was too big. Yes. Elvis was would be a dis- like distraction. King, King Elvis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought that was odd that the 50s influences aren't there. And uh, Stephen, you've got something to say about all the 87 people, so away you go. Yes, uh, well, uh, <laughs> number one, Alistair Crowley, uh, a hugely prolific author uh, of occult books. No, we better not, better not, uh, better not go down that avenue. There are, there are websites that um, look into this kind of thing. There's also a website out there that has tried to source the original image for mm. each of the faces that is used on the, on the cover, which is a very noble task, I think, yes. you know? yes. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, there, 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 are, there are some sort of well-known stories of you, like Mae West is there and she said she didn't want to be in a lonely... Why would she be in a Lonely Hearts Club? Yes. Uh, you've got Fred Astaire, who, who was apparently thrilled to, to, to be uh, on, on the cover. On the cover. Um, and the other... So, so all of these people who were, who were still alive at the time, um, they, had, they had to get clearances from yeah. all of them. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, I think it's famously one of Epstein's last sort of messages was uh, please put put this album in a in a brown paper <laughs> bag you know don't 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 do this because it was sort of completely fraught yes uh, uh, w- w- with issues with legal issues about getting clearances and copyrights and Epstein had um, he was sort of notorious for falling out with his employees and sacking them and having massive rise and yeah he had just had that type of row uh, and sacked his PA and then uh, called her back and tasked her with this this uh, uh, getting all of these uh, clearances. these clearances. So. It is fantastic and I mean you know there's, there's a bunch of urban myths or, uh, about the cover itself that the white floral guitar on the front is part of the Paul is dead myth you know this one that it says But you can see that It does say P-A-U-L question mark Yeah it says P-A-U-L question mark It's quite clear quite clear I remember I pointed that out recently to my my niece and she was stunned that you could actually see it But isn't there also a mirror thing where you put a mirror across lonely hearts and it says 
I won, he die or something like, like that. Paul has been dead for ages, honestly. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you've got the uh, the hand above, above Paul's, Paul's head, head yeah. there. Um, yeah, and uh, that could be and on the back cover. Yeah, Paul's back is turned. Paul's back is turned. Plus, you've got all the lyrics for the first for time the first on an time. album sleeve. There's 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 lyrics on an album sleeve. A very simple idea, but a perfect yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also the very first uh, reference, I think, uh, to Apple. Yes, uh, appears on this. But it, so it's this idea that this this album is more lavishly packaged than anything yeah. that has gone. Uh, before, and it does, you know, uh, it, it is lavishly packaged. It's in a gatefold. It has, you know, these little kind of cutout moustaches yep. and everything else. It has the inner sleeve designed by the fool yep. who seemed to be. Did you did you cut out the moustaches? I did not. No, I was I was already, uh, you know, uh, pr- all protect the record. Even <laughs> if it did. Um, but it's interesting that you know, apart from all these lyrics on the back, which is a, a bit of a first event, um, albums in those days didn't have credits, and you know, Peter Blake and and. Yep. Jen and uh, Michael Cooper do get credits on the back and uh, you know the Apple is mentioned um, and George Martin gets a proper credit as well so, so even albums at that point didn't get a credit and there's also the little stone figure at George's feet appears on another album cover it's on Hey Jude it's on the Hey Jude compilation cover that little stone statue sits outside and if you look at the spine it's flicked the wrong it's, way around it's, it's for it's to be read by left handed people yes you tip Although, your head to the other side I think you'll find that this copy has yes, done it wrong has done it wrong I know this um, is I've brought in a copy today that we're just as if we've never seen the cover of Sgt Pepper before <laughs> is, this a, is this a bootleg copy where they deliberately that is my it? copy that came with the Diagostini re-release from 2017 those ah. magazine and is it very rare because it has the spine I, I don't running the wrong so. way no was, yeah, I was yeah. thinking which copy of Sgt Pepper did I not mind leaving the house oh I see <laughs> so right. I brought okay. that <laughs> instead of one of the precious ones um, so yeah so I mean it's a cover that's gone on to you know as I said we're still looking at it over 50 years later and it's thing that, that's been copied and ridiculed and praised and uh, but it's still a very striking cover and I yep. think even for people who don't know the Beatles it's a, 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 an image that they people would identify as oh that's one of that's a, a Beatles thing do you know what I mean? It is I mean uh, it, it is I suppose uh, apart from the with the Beatles album is the sort of iconic early Beatles this is the the, the late period and yes. this is, everyone would know what this is and who this is and uh, as you say the number of parodies um, Frank Zappa have you ever seen that album yeah, yeah, yeah. we're only in it for the money yeah um, so that I think that to my as far as I'm aware that was the first parody of the cover um, so even at that stage within a few months it was being recognised that this is a sort of uh, significant iconic thing, thing that yeah. is, is so Zappa rang McCartney all right or McCartney says he remembers getting a, a, a call to ask, would it be all right, or could, you know, just to say this is what we're going to do. And could you, uh, McCartney said he he didn't really engage with them because he kept talking about product, right? And he thought this is this is about money. This is you you want something from me, and uh, I, I'm not sure the Beatles ever actually signed off uh, on, it. on it. But uh, it, it's very funny if you if you get a chance. <laughs> the album, the, that that whole album is very good, but uh, the cover is hilarious. Um, so. The album, the you know, the last main recording session is on the 1st of April. And so the album is due to come out. Its official release date is still listed as the 1st of June in the UK and the 2nd of June in the US. It seems to have come out a week earlier in the UK, about May the 25th. But there's a, a bunch of work that needs to happen aside from the cover to get the album finished. And so there's an awful lot of mixing and sequencing that goes on in April, some of it with the Beatles present, but a lot of it without the Beatles present. Because uh, for a chunk of April, for 10 days, Paul McCartney goes off to America Mm. and he seems to sort of 
he, he kind of goes over there possibly planting some seeds eulogising this album that's coming out this is coming. and maybe also winding up people like Brian Wilson to say yeah you think you're in front yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of thing as well so we can blame Paul for Brian's uh, demise well Demise. Well, he, he's he's in America. Decline. <laughs> Decline. He's in America from the Paul's in America from the third of April to the twelfth of April, sixty-seven, and he goes to Los Angeles and San Francisco and Denver, and um, he Denver a hotbed of. Uh Counterculture, counter-culture activity. I don't know, but is then that with Jane Asher performing. Jane Asher is performing at that time, so he's there with Jane, and then he flies back to Los Angeles and he meets up with Brian Wilson and John Michelle Phillips, and he performs on the track "Vegetables," yep. which we've mentioned before, where he's eating a carrot. In a, you know, I think that's called foreshadowing yes. for his later life. Um, but as far as we know, he plays or he has some copies of tracks with him that he's playing for people while he's over there, saying, you know, oh, just you wait here it comes. Yep. You know, we we know. So he, he obviously knows that he's onto a good thing, and he's doing his Paul PR routine while in America. Uh, he comes back on the twelfth, uh, and then there's a a bit of work still to be done on the album. They uh, do a little bit of recording on uh, the reprise and only a northern song and the run out groove on the twentieth and twenty first of April um, but essentially the 21st of April is the last day when anything new is laid down and you know the, the, the dog tone and the run out groove are kind of added on at the end and then it's just a question of getting the album off and getting the album pressed but yeah. it's such a quick turnaround time when you think about it that it's a month from the last thing being recorded to it being in the shops um, Beatles at the end of uh, April are still knocking around uh, London they go to see Donovan perform in concert and uh, he obviously gives them lots of tips as to what to do next. And they don't go back in and uh, <laughs> uh, apply his folk stylings to Sergeant Pepper. To Sergeant Pepper, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pity, isn't it? Yeah. But what's interesting is they still keep recording. And there's a, you know, between, you know, finishing Pepper on April the 21st and Pepper coming out at the end of May, they record some of my favourite songs. They record Magical Mystery Tour. Mm-hmm. So. That even though the, they're nowhere near recording the film yet, yep. they have this song "Magical Mystery Tour," and then some more of my favourites: "Baby, You're a Rich Man," "All Together Now," "You Know My Name," "Look Up the Number." Um, all those tracks get laid down in in May. I think there's oh yeah, and it's all too much. Also gets recorded in May. I was waiting for you to <laughs> to, to say that. That's the that's the best song. "It's All Too Much" is a great song, and that could have been a great Pepper song if it had that just come in in time. That song. is a certainly a high point of yep. Beatles psychedelia. But May sixty. Uh, Seven, yeah, to have all these songs, and they they're kind of recording them without any purpose. The the, the magical mystery tour thing is still very embryonic. Yes, it's not yes. A, it's not something that they're going to do. But it's interesting that they've nothing else to do. Yes, because I think I'm, uh, it's right to say, or sort of fairly accurate, that that up to this point in their career, they've been recording for specific yes albums or a sing. You know, you have to go come off the tour, you, we need to single, come into the studio, do a single. Come, we've got an album release coming up, do an album. Yeah. Here the album is in the can, but they just keep going. Yeah. Um, and whether that's uh, because they just have an abundance of, of, of songs lying around that they feel they need to, to, to get out and get recorded, or whether they are already sort of thinking, well, we need to stockpile yeah. uh, for something. But it is, it is the first time I think that they, they're doing that. They're recording not for a specific and it's, you're wondering what, what Epstein is doing at this moment because you think, well, look, there's an album ramping up. Let's do a week or two of promo. Let's do some interviews. Let's mm. get you plugged into certain things. But that doesn't happen. They keep on working. There's really only one thing that they do in order to launch the album, and that's they go to Epstein's house on uh, 
what's the date, the 19th of May, to do a press launch for the album. Because the background to this is that people think they're about to break up. Yeah. Um, so all of all of this is 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 happening uh, against the media, thinking, well, they haven't toured for a while. Uh, you, you know, th- there hasn't been a single story. Feelers, Penny Lane got to number two. It didn't get to number one. I, I, you know, and there's that that sort of those individual interviews of them arriving at Pepper, which they keep getting trotted out. Um, yes, yes. Which is all sort of a bit of a setup, where so you know, are you going to break up? Um, are you going to do solo things or any hint of? You know, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, McCartney has this thing about, well, we knew that we were about to unleash yeah. something uh, incredible. But clearly, he knows that not only because he has an inherent faith in the album, but because he has been doing what you described, which is letting other people hear it. Yes. So, you, key you know, influencers, key we would influencers. say these days. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So he's let Brian Wilson hear, I think. Uh, from memory, I should have looked this up, but I think it's "She's Leaving Home" is the track that he plays. Okay. Uh, to Brian Wilson, we we mentioned earlier that, or in part one, that uh, you know David Crosby was there and they they let him hear a day in the life. And but he, isn't there a thing where he says he's the first person to hear a day in the life? Yes, yes. So he uh, he turns up uh, at the um, lovely Rita sessions, uh, yeah. session and uh, he describes them sitting him in a stool and wheeling in these enormous speakers like uh, <laughs> like coffins on wheels is how he describes it he also says uh, you'll not be surprised to know he's as high as a kite um, <laughs> and, and they, so if you can imagine sitting in, in presumably this was Studio 2 yeah. uh, sta- their state of the art speakers he's in the, sitting in between these speakers and they play A Day in the Life yeah. and he said by the end of that piano chord quote unquote my brains were on the floor Um <laughs> So assuming that he can remember the next day what it is that he heard, yeah. uh, you, you know, he is again a, a key influencer. Yeah. Um, that that the word is out that amongst their peer group. These this is this is what's happening, and, and plus, you, you also mentioned you know Mike Nesmith has been at the yeah. recording uh, sessions. You know Marianne Faithful, uh, Mick Still Jagger. Uh, at one point or another, their friends and their peer group are dropping in and out of these. Uh, of these sessions. And just looking at the timeline here, Crosby's story checks out that A Day in the Life was finished on February the 22nd and Lovely Rita was recorded on February the 23rd. So, so 24 hours later, they're playing him the rough yeah, mix. Just of, you uh, listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, so, but th- th- there's also one of my favourite books on 1967 pop is The Act You've Known for All These Years by Clinton Halen. Mm. Uh, but it does have a very amusing opening line, which was, when Sgt. Pepper was released to a suspecting public, not yes. an unsuspecting yeah, public, but yeah. a suspecting public. So I think at the same time, there might have been a bit of hype where people were like... They were building up the anticipation. We know this it's is coming, it's drop. coming, yeah. yeah. Um, the other interesting thing that happens in May uh, 1967 is on the 15th of May, Paul meets Linda for the first time at the Bag of Nails. And, uh, you know, he meets her and says, oh, do you want to come along to a club? And she comes along and she hangs out and she ends up going back. Uh, and they're all hanging out in his house. And she said, uh, famously, I was impressed to see his magrites. So <laughs> well, there, you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's a, that's a first date if ever there was one. Um, but the reason why that's important is they meet on the 15th and this press launch happens in Epstein's house on the 19th, where mm. a select group of... DJs and journalists and photographers are invited into Brian's house. The four Beatles are there and there are some very famous photos, including my favourite photo of that day where um, Paul and John are kind of sitting at either, are standing at either end of the Beatles and they're shaking hands and they're yep. just laughing, laughing at each other. At each other and yeah. that's a picture taken by Linda 
Eastman. And it's a picture that she instigated because she apparently was saying to them, you guys look too serious. Can we just have a bit of fun? And John and Paul have this flash of a moment. Linda gets the picture at the right angle. And so all these little, again, all these coincidences, all these gears are moving that um, that she is there and they are there. And this mm. is happening in Brian's. What's interesting is by the 19th of May, though, uh, and something that I kind of only really realised recently, was that the album is on the airwaves. It is being played. And it starts getting played on the 12th of May that uh, apparently the Beatles gave a, uh, an eight-day window to Big L, Radio London, the pirate that was yeah. moored off the coast of South End or somewhere, I don't know where it was, um, but a pirate radio station because there was still no commercial radio mm-hmm. in the UK. The BBC did not have a pop music station yet. That wouldn't happen until BBC Radio 1 launched in September. And so Big L, uh, Radio London, along with Radio Caroline, are the two big uh, transmitters of pop music yeah. and pop culture uh, to the airways in the UK. And so Radio London gets this uh, window of Exclusivity. So people yeah. are hearing this album from the 12th of May, which is about three weeks before release. People in London. People. <laughs> well, it would travel a little bit on the would medium it, wave. Yeah, yeah, would it reach Liverpool? Uh, well, I, I, think, I think some of those stations travelled up the country because yeah. if they were getting signals from Radio Luxembourg, I'm I sure suppose. they could get I signals from the, from the ship. But it's interesting because... Uh, you know, somebody who's in the mix at this time is uh, Kenny Everett. Mm. And Kenny Everett is, uh, if you know who Kenny Everett is, you know who Kenny Everett is. If you don't know who Kenny Everett is, he's perhaps best known for being a television comedy star in the 70s and 80s. But back in the 60s, he was one of the first uh, pirate radio DJs and was an influencer in youth culture and was very, very creative. And But he managed to get himself inside the Beatles the circle. circle. And he was one of the people who were... Uh, at that Brian Epstein launch on the 19th and as a very nervous callow youthful DJ he got some words out of the Beatles and he manages to preview the whole album on a BBC light programme radio show on the 20th of May with clips from interviews on the 19th uh, a show called Where It's At where he uh, plays previews of all the songs so the songs are now getting into the the, the, the national culture and discourse but there's one song Kenny isn't allowed to play which is A Day in the Life A Day in the Life because the BBC decided to ban it because they thought it was <sighs> just druggy. druggy, 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 which the Beatles have um, denied and s- said it isn't. Uh, oh, they're all, all those songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a very nice letter. You can read the entire letter that the BBC sent to EMI, which is like, we're terribly sorry. We know people are going to think we're awfully foolish, but we really have to ban this song. And, you know, we can't quite believe a, it's quite apologetic. It is very, very yeah. apologetic and very twee. But obviously, all publicity is good publicity. But that song does get... Um, does get uh, banned by the BBC and later in 67 when the pirates are shut down I think Radio London the last song they play is A Day in the Life and the chord goes down and they shut down for to make way for BBC uh, BBC Radio 1 Did that band that band lasted for a long time I think Which band? The, 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 oh for yeah. A Day in the Life yeah. Was it still there in the 80s? I think I think it did I, I, I think maybe it did run up until the, the mid 80s Hmm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, because A Day in the Life was released as a single. Yeah. Uh, in one of those sort of exploitation, yeah, yeah, re-release, yeah. compilation things. Uh, and I remember it not being played yeah. uh, then, sort of in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, that's interesting. Well, then, the album's official release date, uh, people talk about it 
the official release date being June the 1st. That's certainly the date that's used in the in the mm. kind of record books or Wikipedia or wherever you look today. It seems to have come out into the shops a few days beforehand, but it, it, it becomes this soundtrack to the summer. And on the official day of release, June the 1st, the Beatles go into a studio and they do something that's very unlike what they do. They just jam yeah. for hours on end. And to be honest, I'm more curious to hear this than Carnival of Light. Yes, yes, because they're, they're, they're not a jam band. They're no. not a band. Uh, you, you know, you, you see the clips from, from Let It Be. Yes. And I mean, it's not good. No. Uh, it's not good. And Lewison has heard this and says, it's not good, which doesn't mean I don't want to hear it. I'm yeah. kind of curious. There's about three to four hours of them just jamming, hitting organ chords, trying to figure out. And it's interesting, even though they've recorded all these extra songs since they finished Pepper, uh, on the day it comes out, they're kind of doing this aimless, very atypical type music where they're just noodling and noodling. For what purpose? For what, we don't this is really the thing, know. for what purpose? For what purpose? Yeah. And, uh, I think it's it's Ian MacDonald in, in, in his book Revolution in the Head, he, he starts talking about this is the period where they... they uh, as we would say over here, they start to lose the rudder of themselves. You know, they, 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 they just begin to think, well, random things will happen and you have to embrace these random things and yeah. these accidents. And if you just, uh, it, it's, it's because we're doing it, it must be good. Um, <laughs> yes. So whatever we do is worthy of, you know, getting on tape. And, and uh, uh, he talks about, you know, if you look at those songs that they're recording, they're, they're sort of throwaway. He particularly, uh, I think it's, you know my name, look up the number, which I think is charming. Yeah. Um, that this is just a waste of time and this is very self-indulgent. Yes. And if you look at other albums that are released within four weeks of Sgt. Pepper, you have albums like Are You Experienced by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, The Supremes, Sing Rogers and Hart, uh, Double Trouble by Elvis Presley, the soundtrack, uh, Flowers by the Rolling Stones. Uh, famously, on June 1st, David Bowie releases his debut album, David Bowie, which sings without trace, really, and Headquarters by The Monkees, which is a great album. Oh, great album. Great album. Uh, but that's kind of the milieu into which yep. that album is dropping. But you kind of look at later in the year and how the after effect is that, you know, you've Piper at the Gates of Dawn coming out in August, the first album from Pink Floyd, which you could argue is, you know, hugely influential mm. in a totally different way. Uh, and then by the end of the year, you have very different takes on the music of 1967. You have John Wesley Harding from Bob Dylan coming out. You have Satanic Majesties from The Stones, which does seem like a response to Pepper in a way, you know, that kind of colourful yeah. cover. Um you have the Who Sell Out Forever Changes um, and, uh, you know, uh, something else by the Kinks and Capricorn, uh, Pisces, Aquarius and Jones by the Monkeys as well. Another great uh, Monkeys album. Monkeys are very... Three pro- albums in 67. Very prolific. They weren't, very, uh, they weren't lazy. They weren't slacking. They weren't slacking. I, th- th- this, is, this is, again, back to my, my single unifying theory <laughs> that um, Pepper is really the point uh, at which everything coalesces in a single, uh, you know, single album, a single event, yep. and then it starts to fracture and go off in different directions. So, uh, you know, it's difficult if you listen to Piper at the Gates of Dawn. You think, well, there's not a Beatles influence there really that you can uh, that, that you can detect. Yes, um, you, you, you've got. The Monkees, which is the kind of perhaps the younger audience, although by late 67, but I suppose particularly uh, uh, whenever Head comes out then, yeah. subsequently the Monkees are heading in that direction. But at this stage in 67, they're still tapping into that younger fan base. Yeah. So the Beatles are older. Their fans are older. The 10, 11, 12-year-olds aren't listening to the Beatles. They're going to be listening to the Monkees. But um, the Beatles' curse is that all these things are happening because of the Beatles because anyway. Of the Beatles. Because they've yeah. made pop 
culture recognizable, monetizable, you know, it's it's invigorated. If you exactly. want to be totally corporate uh, about it, it's invigorated people to put their hands in their pockets and buy the stuff. Yeah. So the spin off is you get Pink Floyd, you get the monkeys, yes. you get the Velvet Underground, you get all these things. And it all seems to spin off after Sgt. Pepper. Yes. That that's you know, there's something here, there's the mums, there's the dads, there's the the kids, there's everybody loves this album. It's it's kind of the the, the hippies, the heads. And then after Sgt. Pepper, yeah. uh, there, there's kind of all of these different strands. I mean, I suppose you've got Prague, yeah. uh, you, you know, you've got the Monkees, you've got the West Coast. And I say, it's this transition from, this is, this is almost like London signing off mm. uh, as the swinging center of the universe. Yes. Uh, this is the, the last kind of sign off from London and now it's over to the West Coast of America. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So then let's talk about this afterlife of Pepper and the notion of the album, because I've said before, I think the Beatles were a, an album's band from the very start, yeah. Please Please Me, with the Beatles. But something happened with Pepper where, you know, there was kind of a, a critical consensus uh, that says, oh, the album is the thing. The mm. album is the statement for musicians now. And, you know, you could see commercially that albums started to outsell singles, that people started to define themselves by the albums they put out, not the songs they put out. And you kind of see it in, um, you know, we were talking recently about Cream, you know, they were releasing singles, but they were kind of moving into albums territory at the same yep. time. There's a, there's a big shift that's going on. And so whenever I look back at stuff that looks at, you know, the greatest albums of all time, you look at these lists when they start to appear in the 70s and Pepper's always at the top of yep. that list. Yep. And it seems kind of sacrosanct that there is no other album that uh, that counts. And it seems inherent on people being around in 1967 when it came out that that album gets that status. I think that's right. I think it, I, I, I think it is that uh, th- th- this notion that uh, this was some sort of peak, this was some sort of pinnacle. Yeah. Um, and that, that everything that comes after is sort of influenced by or nothing can quite measure up uh, to Pepper. But it's because of its, uh, it, it's sort of its, its universal appeal. Mm. Um, plus also you, you had that six-month anticipation, more than six-month anticipation. Yeah. What are they doing in there? Yeah. What, what's happening? Yeah. Uh, and everyone is waiting for, you know, it's almost like the tablets to be handed down from the mountain. <laughs> and then when it comes, it's spectacular. It is good. In terms of everything, the, the packaging, the content, the, the, the leap forward in studio craft. Yeah. Um, you know, you can argue... The songwriting is, uh, you know, they've written better songs. Mm. Uh, they go on to write better songs. Uh, 
but as a as a sort of a, a, a thing, a total sort of package, yeah. um, it's all there. And uh, in terms of its reach, yeah, I think it, I think something that's important that's something that's sometimes forgotten about is it's the first. Beatles album that's pretty much released the exact same all over the world at the same time. Yes. So you have, you know, there's no difference between the US Pepper and the UK Pepper. So it is easy to get a consensus because the US got a different rubber sole, a different revolver. Yep. So those albums didn't get a consensus the way that Pepper got. And it sort of lasts. I mean, I first listened to Pepper on I remember the date. It was a bank holiday in Ireland. It was the 1st of June, 1987. And you can figure out why I listened to it on that day. Because it was the height of hype about Pepper that it was 20 years ago today. And this kind of Pepper hype seemed to last for those 20 years that the people who were around in 67 kept voting it as the top album of all time. There was a Paul Gambaccini book I remember buying at the time that had the top 100 albums and Pepper's at number one. And, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, that is a great album. It it is. I mean, I think you're right. And that's why I think subsequently there was was maybe a little bit of a backlash against that, that it it became a kind of a generational thing that sort of, oh, yeah, well, the 60s, of course, everything was better in the 60s and the best year was 67. And in 67, the best album was Sgt. Pepper and yeah, 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 yeah. And and, and there, there then becomes a reaction to that. Well, it is interesting, though, because, you know, with all that, it was 20 years ago hype, there was a a bunch of things happening. The Beatles were landing on CD in 1987. Mm. Um, There was, uh, Derek Taylor wrote a book called It Was 20 Years Ago Today, uh, which recounted Pepper and all the other um, pop cultural achievements of the year. And then there was a big two-hour Granada TV, ITV documentary that tied in with that as well. And certainly to my mind at the time, when I saw these things, it seemed like another world. Twenty, like yes. 1967 to 1987 seemed very, very different. And you're being told by the television, oh, this is significant. I must pay attention. Yes. I mean, tw- 20 years was a long time <laughs> then, <laughs> then. Then. When you're not 20 years yes. yourself. Yes. Uh, but there was a bit of 60s revivalism at the time. You know, I remember Channel 4 in the UK was showing Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah. You know, the Avengers and the Prisoner were getting kind of reclaimed as cult classics. Uh, it was referenced in adverts. Oldies radio meant 60s radio at the time. Mm-hmm. So you could choose into the 60s at the time but yeah once you kind of get out of that 20 years it was 20 years ago today period and maybe you know rock criticism is people who were born after Pepper came out uh, and different kind of music takes over you know Pepper kind of loses ground and people recalibrate on the Beatles overall and what the best Beatles album is overall do you think that's Right? Were they like because to my mind the 90s Revolver becomes the best album and in the 21st century Abbey Road becomes the best yep. album, and the White Album always seems to be the second best album. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. No, I think I think that is right. I think I think it it reflects, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of shift away. There's a lot of artifice about Sgt. Pepper. Yes, I mean, even from the from the made up nature of the band. Yes, uh, on the front cover and and the, the kind of studio trickery or overdubbery uh, that, that's going on. Uh, so when you get a, a kind of a swing back towards, you know, guitars and... and Open, big inverted commas, reality r- and authenticity. Yes, authenticity. Uh, yeah. uh, th- this sort of becomes unfashionable. So whether it's, it's, whether it's punk or whether it's uh, the kind of uh, guitar-based Britpop or whether it's Americana mm. or uh, sort of lo-fi... Uh, stuff. It, th- this then becomes something else. It, it's it's symbolic of uh, the '60s, but the '60s are no longer held in the same regard. So yes. the, the the point is, 
for me, uh, kind of growing up in the in the seventies, which were pretty grim, uh, and into the eighties, and, and then you kind of got the whole kind of Thatcherite thing going on, and yeah. greed is good. The sixties were a, a, seemed to be some kind of golden age to aspire to, mm. but then you know the punk and and, and in the eighties in particular. The 60s fell out of fashion. They yeah. were no longer, that was where things started to go wrong. So, as you have a kind of cultural swing to the right, mm. the 60s become the source of, uh, uh, well, that was, you know, it was drugs and uh, <laughs> yeah. the generation loose gap morals. and loose morals and, yeah. and kids not knowing when they were well off. And if, if Ian McDonald in his book deals with that. Uh, he's got a very good essay in that in, in Revolution yeah. Head that deals with that. Yeah. But I suppose the irony now is you look back on Ian McDonald's book and you think, well, that's no longer the fashionable theory either. Yes. Um, so it, it is this sort of cyclical thing, and I think Sergeant Pepper just kind of goes up and down or round yeah. uh, as, as those. But yet it still gets mentioned uh, as sort of a, something that all artists have to do in their career. Oh, this is their this Sergeant Pepper. This is their Pepper. Sergeant Pepper. You know, yeah. that this is the moment where they experiment and they break out of themselves and they, they you know, they, they, you know, and they kind of... What happens like Costello's Imperial Bedroom or something yes. like that, you know? You think, but oh, again, you think of the production on that album. Yeah. That compared with something like his first album. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, am I right in saying he had Jeff Emmerich? He had Jeff Emmerich. Uh, so produce. so it's any album that, that has a lot of uh, studio uh, trickery and overdubs and, uh, heaven forbid, orchestras and string sections and things. Is our that, first that, mention of Jeff Lynne in season two? Well, <laughs> I, I could, as, soon as, hey. I start, as soon as I started that sentence, I could, uh, could can I, see him. Well, there is, there is that aspect. There is that kind of 67 is where Jeff Lynne, yes. as I said, he 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 uh, sticks his boot in the ground. He he listens to Sergeant Pepper Magical Mystery Tour, takes that as the template, and never looks forward. Yeah. Takes the piano from a day in the life and turns it into Mister Blue Sky. And now that's his hand is on your shoulder, Stephen, and all that kind it, of stuff. Um, quick move, move, <laughs> move on, move on, move on. I think f- for me, uh, as I said, I, I, I love Pepper. I'm very fond of it. Uh, I, I I keep finding things to come back to it. The first big reassessment I had was in 2009 when the Mono Box came out, and I'd never yes. heard Pepper in Mono before. So let's talk about Pepper in mono for a bit because the assumed wisdom is that mono pepper is the best pepper and when the CD reissues came out in mm-hmm. 2009 and I got the mono CD box uh, I thought it was like hearing pepper for the first time it is a different thing it sounds great yes <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah 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 well yeah, no yeah I agree with you up to the point where you were saying uh, it sounds like a different thing mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it does sound completely different I grew up listening to the, the sort of the stereo pressings from 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 the mid 70s yeah um, that's what I'm used to uh, I, I, I got the 87 CD which was the same uh, when when the the mono version came along it 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 sounds rougher. Yes, the transitions between songs are a little bit clunky. Some yeah. of the editing is on display. Yes, in a way that I think it isn't in the stereo mix. But the story um, goes: the Beatles were there for the mono mix. Yeah, that that was what they signed off on, and they weren't there for the stereo mix because stereo was seen as a fad sure. or not the definitive article. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I mean, I absolutely uh, accept that the mono version is the way it was meant to be heard, the way the Beatles wanted it to be heard. For me, and I suspect for my kind of generation, it's not what we are used to. And it is so ingrained 
yes. that hearing the mono mix was incredibly jarring. And some, as I say, it seemed to me that some of the edits and some of the transitions are smoothed over in this in the stereo mix in a way that it almost sounds like it's a rough mix to me. Well, I've, I've made a note of some of the mono differences that mm. I remember grabbing me at the time and still sort of stick out to me because the, the stereo is so familiar. There's like extra guitar notes and noodling at the end of the opening Sgt. Pepper track. Yes, yes. Um, She's Leaving Home is in a totally different speed and pitch. Yeah. Um, benefit of Mr. Kite, the effects come in differently and they sound differently as well. Within You Without You, the laughter is a lot louder at the end. It sometimes gets lost, I think, in the original stereo mix. 64, when I'm 64, sounds really tight and compact. It's not kind of, it's mm. much broader on the stereo uh, uh, version. Um, the drums and piano on Lovely Rita sound great. You, you get that really clear. I don't believe it right at the end of Lovely Rita that yeah. it gets lost in the stereo remix. Um, the Pepper uh, reprise, the, the edit is totally different. The, the noise from the end of Good Morning, Good Morning is much kind of blunter, as, as, as you kind of point out. But the drums sound amazing. And Paul has all these shout outs at the end that are missing in the stereo version. Thank yep. you very much now. Yep. Thanks for coming. Like all that stuff that he's still doing now in concert <laughs> starts there. And sort of a day in the life comes in faster. I wouldn't say it's clunkier, but it just sort of lands in on top a lot faster than it does in the stereo version. Yeah, I, th- I, I think, as I say, those, those, it, it's the fact that it's pulling things out. Yeah. Is, is what is slightly jarring for me. I, I enjoy listening to it, but it, yeah. it, 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 it's very difficult for me to get past the notion that this is a kind of rougher mix. Yes. Um, and that really the stereo version is, is... But it is worth reminding ourselves that radio was in mono at the time, so yeah. in the UK, yeah, and yeah. that these are the versions that would have been hitting the airwaves, not yeah. the stereo versions. But then that brings us on to, you know, 2017 and the kind of reassessment of Sgt. Pepper through the box set. And I certainly remember, it's not that long ago, obviously, but people were saying the Beatles will never do a super deluxe edition, Mm. multi-disc box set. And here we are. And here we are. Um, But I think the Sgt. Pepper box, they got it almost right, apart from leaving off only a northern song. Uh, It's, uh, I think they get the balance right between, they're never going to give us a Dylan style, here's every single second of studio recording ever. Maybe that's for the 100th anniversary. Yeah. um, but I, like for the for, for the purposes of today, I went back and listened to the bonus discs again. I hadn't done that in a while, and they do tell a great story. And it is you know we talked earlier on in part one about the chronological recording, and you can hear those those songs evolve chronologically on the box set as well. Um, but I think it's a it's a good box set overall. Were there any insights you got to any particular songs? It, it is uh, no, I I, I love the box set and. Um I think we touched on this previously, which is is some of those basic tracks yeah. uh, that you think, uh, you know, they'd stop touring. They were saying all the songs are too complicated. We can't play them live. They, they I would love to have, have heard them kind of rocking out to that. Rocking out to Just Sar- like Hendrix Sgt. when yes. he played Sergeant Pepper yeah. the weekend it came out live. Yeah, that, that you think if they'd, they'd kind of taken that into uh, a small theater and, and, and just done a live run through or done rehearsals in a theatre where they were recording and playing these things yeah. live. And you hear it in songs like um, Good Morning, Good Morning. There's an mm. Anthology 2 version and a yes. Pepperbox version yes. that just, just rocks. And yeah. it's a totally different song. A bit like the, the I'm the Walrus has a similar Anthology 2 version as well, which is just them yes. rocking out. And as a, that's the kind of thing I would, I would like to hear... I suppose we always want more, and uh, you know yeah. we want the 60th anniversary box set, and that that's the one I, I I'd like to hear more of those kind of studio yeah. uh, run through yeah. uh, takes, you know. But you kind of also notice their sense of arranging on these songs is really interesting. So something like the the naked version of When I'm 64 on the box, without the horns or anything mm. else, with the clarinets, it's really 
empty. It's yes. just bass and drums and Ringo kind of playing to the song in a really retro, fantastic way. Um, but then you get into something like Penny Lane, and one of my favourite things on the box set is the piano instrumental, the instrumental of Penny Lane. Yeah. That's an amazing thing. It is. It is. And you think, how, how, do, they, how do they do that? I, I mean, it's, it's a musician thing that yeah. you can hear. You're playing something, you're playing a basic rhythm track, but presumably in your mind you're hearing... Well, Paul the seems to hear line. in records. He yes. hears in arrangements where, yes. you know, not many people do that. Some people hear in melody or rhythm or yeah. whatever, but he does, he kind of seems to hear in records. So for something like Penny Lane, which is three pianos that he's playing overdubbed on top of each other, um, uh, which eventually get buried into the mix. Yeah. When you hear them on their own like that, you think, oh, this is how he was putting yes, the song together but, but in his head. He, he knows this. He's a very clear sense of where he's going. Yeah. Um, you you listen to things like Lennon doing his acoustic version of Strawberry Fields. There's no indication that he's kind of grasping his way or working his way towards that finished mix. Yeah, McCartney, you're you're absolutely right. He he seems to start with a much clearer idea yeah. of where this is going to end up. But uh, I'm not the, the only one to say it. But that piano version of of Penny Lane, it sounds as if it could have dropped off Pet Sounds. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that was the that was the thing that that struck me was that that's a little instrumental that. Brian Wilson could just have slotted into to pet time. Yeah, it's so clean mm. and ornate and well recorded. It's 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 if if you haven't heard it, it's really worth um, uh, seeking out again. And the other thing the box made me realise, and I know we said this in part one, is just Ringo. Ringo's that snare sound that Ringo yep. has on Pepper is really brought to the fore on the Pepper box. And when it's stripped of overdubs on things like Good Morning, Good Morning, and Getting Better and all the rest, Ringo's business. I know he's learning chess at the same time. Well, this is the thing, but, but, but he, he's the one that, that is is sort of saying, oh, well, you know, it, it wasn't, he didn't really enjoy the recording process. And, mm. you know, once I'd done my basic stuff, but yet he's so central yeah. to it. And I think part of the problem, uh, part of one of the reasons why it was so underappreciated is this idea of they were recording on four track, then they would create a sort of a reduction mix onto one track to give them another three tracks to be. Yeah. And it's always the first things that are being recorded are the bass and the drums. Yeah. So the drums are getting mixed, pushed, pushed further down, and further down. down. Yeah. And uh, uh, one of the things that I thought was st- startling was that they kept uh, they kept each of the sort of reduction mixes. Yes. So Giles Martin was able to go right back. So each time they did that sort of reduction mix yeah. onto one, they kept the four track so they could yeah they, so they could kind of un, yeah so they could kind of unpick it um, so that's why Ringo was saying oh I love these this is great because you can hear the drums and you, you know and, and that's it, that's the most striking thing of the of, of the new remixes or the, the remasters are that the the drums are come, are sort of resurfacing so one of the engineers was interviewed recently about these Beatle remixes and they were talking about how even when you're unpicking previous generations of tape to get the individual mm. tracks tape will always run with microscopic differences yes, in speed, in speed yeah. uh, and what they ended up having to do for a number of tracks when they were trying to sync up it's not a question of putting them into a computer and syncing them up they would literally be riding the very speed control of right. a second tape machine as they were playing the old tape machine to, to try and layer them. it on top and get it as timed as possible so there's some really manual work going on into these remixes but yes, I think the, the Pepper remix yeah, because we had this mono stereo split before, it's the remix that needed to happen more so than any of the other subsequent remixes. And I, I, some people don't like it, but I love it. I do. I love it. Again, it's it's, it's a separate thing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you're probably always going to go back to the the, the mono mix. I'm probably going to go back to the original stereo. Is, yeah. the, is the one? It's the one that's ingrained in my head. But yes, uh, it's a completely different experience. And I, I no, I, I absolutely uh, love the uh, yeah. the Giles Martin. And it's kind of in an era where we have these smart speakers and these this odd kind of return to a new kind of mono. It, it's kind of designed for that kind of listening experience. Yes, you yes, know? yes. Uh, yeah. Any other particular songs you want to pull out? Any other anecdotes that we uh, we might have gone by? We we kind of have barreled through an awful lot. It's a huge topic, Sergeant Pepper, and it's a, a big album. And as I said, there's been so much written and said about it. We could probably do a whole series on Pepper. Well, good. I mean, I, I you know I think that the, there is this thing. Each each song has a, a sort of little background. Just a little, little, little backstory. Whether it's uh, we uh, touched on, you know, Paul McCartney and the traffic warden for Love yes. Vida, although he, he's very adamant, you know, that <laughs> didn't happen. Well, he he said, yeah, it happened in the sense that you know he got a parking ticket, but he said that wasn't mm. that wasn't what he was thinking about. Um, the one I, I I suppose is uh, is is Tara Brown and A Day in the Life. Yeah. Um, so we maybe talk about Tara Brown and that his connection with the, the the Beatles at some point in the future. But basically, he's a he's a, a socialite, mm. uh, one of the beautiful people, young people yeah. uh, in in nineteen sixty six sixty seven. Uh, he's very friendly with with Paul McCartney, very friendly with Mike oh, yeah. uh, McCartney. He and Mike McCartney sort of holidayed in Paris together. And if you if you ever read uh, Mike McCartney's autobiography, it's a fairly slight thing. Um, but it, it's a very interesting book, and he, he describes himself as the kind of working class Liverpool guy heading off to Paris with this, yeah. you know, very fabulously wealthy uh, aristocrat uh, who, who, who's sort of saying, "Don't worry, I'll, I'll I'll pay for everything." And Mike says, "You know, about being a, a proud Northerner." I mm. said, "Great." <laughs> you know, and, um, but. Uh, the idea was, you know, Lennon is sitting and he's got the Daily Mail up and he's reading about the 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 accident or the the inquest, and he's writing. Paul says, no, that's not what he thought mm-hmm. that song was about. That right. he, he thought this was about, a, for some reason, about a politician. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, he blew his mind out in a car that was, was a kind of a drug thing or it was a thing. And he wasn't at that point Plugged making that connection. Said, he said, yeah, well, yeah. that may be what John was thinking about, but that's not what yeah. uh, I was thinking about. And um, it, it, it's, it's that idea that they can... These two people are collaborating on some amazing piece of, of work, yeah. and they're just coming at it from completely different uh, uh, angles. They don't really aren't necessarily on the same page, but mm. they're still creating this 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 amazing kind of piece it's of art. Third thing, yeah, yeah. There, there's lots of stuff that going back to the box made me, you know, uh, you know, think about this album again. You know, particularly the back end of the fourth disc. There's all these crazy mono mixes with awful phasing and string effects and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And the, there's a Penny Lane take that's taken off an acetate, which is a bit controversial as well. Um, but one of the things I did notice was like a, for fixing a hole, it's probably the first instance we have of what I would call Paul McCartney's spitting image songwriting, you know, where he's just writing a song about what's happening around him. He's literally apparently fixing a hole one day and he's like, oh, I'm fixing a hole. And just <laughs> off he goes, he's like, hey guys, I've written a song about fixing a hole. It really, they really did think all things were possible and everything they did was Anything they did was worthwhile. But this is the thing, this is the point at which Lennon is sitting around reading newspapers yeah. and watching, watching the TV. So, and so Paul is fixing holes. And Paul is fixing holes. Well, uh, well again, he... He says, yeah, you know, that people say, oh, I was fixing the roof on the farm 
uh, that I bought up in Scotland. But he said that didn't happen until, you know, I, I did fix the roof, yeah. but I didn't do that until 69 or 1970s. People are just uh, kind of, um, but, but then the, the, the idea that, no, it's actually a drug song. It's about, you know, a fix. It's about heroin. It's about injecting, which is equally nonsensical. Yeah. Um, and this, is, I suppose, is really the beginning of where people are trying to impose their own uh, interpretations yeah. on, on what's going on. Um, whereas really what's happening is they're just writing about what's happening around them. Yeah. I think, look, it's an album that we could talk about for more episodes into the future. It's it's certainly worthwhile always going back to Sgt. Pepper and having a, a listen to it again, even for the purposes of of our podcast this week. It's been fun to just go back and, you know, listen to it with fresh ears and try and pull out little new details and bits and pieces that we haven't heard before. And the, the 2017 box set is as good a place as any to start, particularly the book, which has a huge wealth of information and I, I have an internal logic that says any box set you buy that the, the ratio of listening time to book reading time should at least be one to one, if not longer. Yeah, I think I, I, I think in these box sets, generally the, the book, the books stand yeah. stand on their own. You know, they're, they're worth reading uh, on their own. So I'm going to stick my flag in and say I think it's my favorite Beatles album. OK. <laughs> and, I, but, but this is the this is the, the the you you also have a theory that the first album of an artist you hear is your favorite album yes, by that artist. Yes, and this was the first non-compilation Beatles album I heard. Well, then I, I can I so can give, I have my, to give you that because okay. that, that 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 links in with my theory. I I really like this album. It's not an album. I have to say, it's not an album that I go back to yeah. a lot. But that might be over familiarity. Yes. Um, and when I do go back to it now, I, I I've been going back to the. 2017 mix. Yeah, there's more there than we than we think, and uh, if we uh, can achieve anything through these podcasts, it's to make you just go back and pull records off the shelf and listen to them again, and just uh, marvel at how wonderful the Beatles were. So that's Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, an album by the Beatles, and uh, it's been fun to talk about it. Um, we are available online at all the same usual places at Beatles Pod on Twitter, Facebook group run by Stephen. So go look for the Nothing's Real Facebook group and ask to join. And um, if you uh, download us in your usual places and subscribe, we appreciate all nice reviews. Uh, we're all very welcome uh, to listening to those at any time. But for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. We shall see you the next time. Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.